Shalom and welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Um, if you'd like to contact us with any ideas, suggestions, just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. You can like us on the Jewish Sacred Aging Facebook page. Um, and feel free to contact us if you'd like to uh, be considered to sponsor some of these podcasts. We're always looking for uh, that type of communication and support. As um, we've discussed many times, and I'm sure you've discussed too at your own synagogue or organization or sitting around having a cup of coffee, uh, we are in a very, very interesting time in the American Jewish community, uh, a time of great transition. To speak about that and to discuss uh, a very, very important, uh, let me suggest you a very, very important new book called uh, Judaism in a Digital Age. We welcome uh, the Federation Scholar from the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh, uh, my colleague Rabbi Dan Schiff. Dan, welcome. Welcome to Secrets of Meaning. How you doing? How's Pittsburgh today? Uh, all good in Pittsburgh, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's 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 really good to see you. Full disclosure, I met Rabbi Schiff a few years ago. Um, when I was traveling back and forth to Pittsburgh and in, in a previous life under the Union for Reform Judaism, if some of you may remember that organization. Um, speaking of transitions in a digital age, um, this is a very, very important book. And I, I want, again, I want to congratulate you. For those of you who are, um, perhaps in a sisterhood, a brotherhood, an organization, a synagogue, book club, book group, um, take note of this book. I think it's something that would be very, very worthwhile to um, incorporate in your uh, program year, perhaps uh, as you begin to look at next year. Then uh, Judaism in a Digital Age. You begin um, the book in the beginning, actually the, the sandwich at the beginning and the end of the book. You have this great quote, it's a great quote. By the end of the 21st century, it is plausible that humans of our kind will be rare. And then towards the very, very end of the book, you have this very, very quick quote, modernity is over. What the hell is going on? Well, I think you put your finger on the real significant transformation that we're experiencing. And because we've all lived through it, it's really hard to detect, but I think now that we're some 30 years down the track from the major transition, we can begin to look backwards and, and, and see what happened. And when I say 30 years back, what I really am referring to is around 1990, everything in our lives began to change, and we can clearly, from a technological point of view, determine that that was obviously when the internet age, the digital age began, when Bill Clinton became president in January of 1993, there were 100 sites on the, on the World Wide Web. And by the time he, he left office, eight years later, there were 30 million sites on the World Wide Web. And we were on the way to a transformation in the way that human beings communicated communicate with each other, which was of epochal significance. And that's really transformed everything. My, my contention is that modernity, as we used to talk about modernity beginning in 1789, 
lasted for about 200 years till 1989, and that that therefore was supplanted in 1990 and in the, into the 1990s by this new digital age in which we now find ourselves, which has really changed not just our technology and the way we communicate with each other, but the way we do everything in our lives. So this would be fundamentally that if I understand what you're saying, different from when we move from, you know, just quick hopscotch around Jewish history from into the rabbinic period and then the enlightenment, which changed things and the industrial age, which changed things. And this, then your thesis is this is a fundamentally shift, major shift of all parameters in how we see the world and perhaps even ourselves. Am I, um, would that be a, a safe assessment? Well, that's exactly right. And I, I think that what we have to do, first of all, before we leap into the Jewish history, is we have to look at how human history has changed. And typically what's happened is when we have major ruptures in the way in which human beings communicate with each other, that leads to extraordinary transformations in civilization. So modernity, just to give the, the previous example, really emerged because of the printing press. The printing press is what democratizes knowledge, allows for the spread of knowledge in such a way that it gave rise to modernity. And that, of course, took centuries to take hold. And the internet has had implications within decades. And it's my contention that Judaism then responds in every different age to those types of transformations. And we ought to therefore expect that that's exactly what's going to happen in this age as well. You know, this reminds me you're channeling um, uh, the professor that I went to study with at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, uh, Dr. Rifkin, Alice Rifkin of Blessed Memory, and his book, The Shaping of Jewish History as well as over there on those bookshelves, a bunch of Tom Friedman books, which I think you quote in your book. And, and, and parenthetically, this is a really, 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 really well-researched book. The, you can, you can learn, a, it's a PhD in just the footnotes. Um, so mazel tough on that. Thank uh, you. But I know you quote Tom Friedman uh, a, a couple of times that the impact of technology and that the, the Jewish world then takes its hint or is reflective of these changes within the general general society which so with that in mind you you write in the post world war 2 1950 to 1989 world what what is the role as you see because you work for the federation you know synagogue life um what do you see now as the role of the synagogue in this digital age? Because it is changing. Well, I, I, I believe that the synagogue is a permanent and uh, a, a feature of Jewish life that we can't do without. We, we've, had, we've had synagogues for 2,000 years, and the synagogue was the inheritor of the temple and the tabernacle as a, a central institution, as a central institution whereby we got into, in touch with God. Uh, and it, it will continue to be important. It will continue to be vitally significant for Jews to create communities within which, in the context of a Beit Knesset, of a house of meeting, within which we will be able to, A, 
be in touch with God, continue the 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 epoch, uh, the, the the millennial uh, task of being in being in prayer and being in community with one another, and B, I think uh, we 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 have always used the synagogue as a place where we do our best thinking. There wasn't a bright line until relatively recently between the house of study and the house of prayer and the house of assembly, the house of community. And therefore, it, it strikes me that the synagogue in the digital age needs to not only be a, a place for community and a place for prayer, but also a place for us to think deeply about what this age means and to try to come up with appropriate responses in that in that particular context and and what that will will mean the form it will take we can't yet know clearly synagogue synagogues are going to undergo an evolution they already are uh, but i think that uh, the synagogue as the central institution of jewish life one of the central institutions of jewish life will and ought to remain you write in the book um and again judaism in is in a digital age you spend some time talking about this concept of halakha, uh, Jewish law. The role of halakha is in the diminished role, I think, in the life of so many of our, our people's lives. That's gonna, that's gonna have to go along with this Judaism, this digital age Judaism. You write about this in the book. Talk to me a little bit about how you see the impact in a non-Orthodox community. Let's just be clear about that because it's a different conversation if you're talking about the Satmar and the Lubavitch and the, and the whatevers. Um, how do you see this emerging? Do you see a rebirth? Because I know it's accessible now in ways it was never accessible. I wish I had it when I was a student at HUC, you know, Safari and stuff like that. And more people are looking at it and studying it. What do you see the role of halakha as an informant on how we live our lives in this digital age? Well, the first thing to say is that you use the term non-Orthodox, and it's my contention that terms like reform, conservative, and orthodox are rapidly going to disappear in the next few decades, such that by the end of the 21st century, we won't be talking about Orthodox Judaism and Reform Conservative Judaism anymore, primarily because those are categories that belong to modernity and they don't belong to the digital age. That having been said, plainly, there will be Jews who are more inclined to cleave to stricter understandings of Jewish law and those Jews who are more inclined to see Jewish law as a flexible instrument. When I talk about halakha, it's a loaded concept in our conversations, particularly in the reform movement, because when people hear halakha, they immediately associate it with some form of rigid approach that binds them to practices that they find alien. And I want to suggest that, that, that that's not a healthy or a contemporary way for us to think about halakha. I think that we really need to start thinking about halakha as the type of Jewish 
systemic approach to how we put together a community of practice. Because if we don't have a community of practice, then we essentially have bought into the idea that individualization, or as it's perhaps better described in the digital age, atomization, where I design my own Judaism for myself and you do so for yourself, and we really have little in common. We really have nothing that we can call a Judaism that seeks to shape the world around about us. Then we're essentially islands that have no connection one to another. So halacha is a determination that we want to join together in a community of practice that seeks to have an impact on our civilization and seeks to critique the nature of our civilization through living a life that is seen as a worthy model for how the most elevated form of civilization could ultimately be lived. And that, that I think, is the challenge. I am not pretending that I am offering here a solution that will be broadly appealing to great masses of Jews. What I'm suggesting is that Judaism has always been carried forward by a small saving remnant and that those who are on the liberal end of that spectrum need to be part of that equation by taking Jewish practice seriously. You do talk about the atomization. It's a, a uh, in in the book, and the, it, I think the quote is the atomization of the internet era. Um, it's, a, it's a very important part of the book of this because so much of us, so much in our world, worship at the altar of personal autonomy, where I you know I can do anything I want, and just you know if I feel good, if I pass a corned beef sandwich, I, I you know, and I'm being facetious, but not so much. You also make a very important point about change. Um, and I think it links to the atomization thing about um, repurposing. You, the, I, I think if I remember correctly, one of the images that you use is Kodak, uh, the, the film company for those, you know, of a certain age, you remember, remember Kodak. And you state, as Kodak, as, as the world emerged, Kodak didn't, um, um, I think the word you is repurpose. That's the word you use, repurpose, uh, for the digital age. Quote, so it is for the conservative and reform movements, unquote. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty cool statement. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I think it's cool. I think many people will find it not very cool. Oh no no I I I think actually, this this is why I, this is why I wanted to talk to you about this book because you see um I have this theory that if we continue to especially as we come out of the pandemic if, if I've talked to congregations a lot I say if you continue to do what you've always done you'll be out of business within a generation and my sense in congregation land which is leadership in many ways is very conservative not politically but conservative um, that there's a fear of the future because the world is so significantly changed. Um, everything about it has changed, even, and hopefully we'll get to this if we have time, just the, even the role of the clergy person. How do you then, if you could, you know, you have this platform, 
how how do you see the synagogue, the community, because you work in the community, repurposing your words for this digital age? Well, l- l- let's let's go back for a moment and just consider why I make such a provocative statement as to liken the reform and conservative movement to Kodak and to suggest that it's not in their DNA to become well adapted to the digital age and why I'm therefore predicting that ultimately reform and conservative Judaism will disappear from our lexicon and we'll be talking about new iterations of Judaism. Let's just think about the 19th century and what reform and conservative Judaism tried to help us do and really achieved in extraordinary ways for, for a century and a half. What we were trying to do in the 19th century was to become citizens, to adapt to mass society and to join the nation states of which we were a part. That was one project. And the other project was to incorporate the extraordinary developments in intellectual life, psychology, history, biblical criticism, you name it, into our Jewish way of viewing the world. So the reform and conservative movements were were great vehicles for those two projects. They helped us to adapt to modernity and to adopt the significant ideas of modernity within Jewish life. They were really very successful in that regard. But so my, my contention is that built into the DNA of reform and conservative Judaism is adapt and adopt. Look around and, and, uh, and, and see what's good and adopt it and, and make it, make it, make it Jewish and help Jews to adapt to whatever trends are happening in the surrounding society. And that was a very important way of bringing Jews into modern life. But it's my contention that the digital age is different, that the digital age actually presents us with a whole host of challenges whereby we need to revert to a more classic Jewish model. And that classic Jewish model is now that we're part of the action, we have a duty to critique what is going on. That's what the prophets of Israel always did. They critiqued civilization. They said, this is not the finest we could possibly be. This is not the best form of how we envision the ideal civilization. And so I think that in the digital age, our challenge as Jews is going to be to try to hold up this new digital age for critique and to ask the tough questions about should we really be conducting ourselves in this fashion? And I don't think that the reform conservative movements ultimately are well-purposed for that because in their DNA is always embracing the surrounding zeitgeist, the surrounding attitudes, rather than critiquing them. It's almost as if you're sawing, calling for a, a, a rebirth of classical prophetic Judaism that would critique rather than um, corrupt. Yes, but I want to go a bit deeper than how we have come to understand classical prophetic Judaism because we usually translate that into a sort of narrow social justice model, right. a tikkun olam model. And, and I, I think we, 
need to be regard be considering the the broad nature of the problems that confront us on a much larger canvas than that one of the one of the things that and you're in pittsburgh so the the scope the drama of change and embracing of this digital age and the excitement and the potential for this which is very very energizing in in many ways but still we see that old friend anti-semitism you're in pittsburgh you're very familiar with the tree of life the rise in anti-semitism in the last five six seven years well documented um how much of this do you think, Dan, in light of what you've written, will short circuit, disrupt um, the challenge, the growth, the progress of Judaism in this digital age? Because we still have to deal with being, in many cases, seen as the other. Well, I think that anti-Semitism is a perennial challenge. But at the same time, we have never lived in a period of history like the one in which we currently find ourselves, where Jews are so broadly accepted. My argument about the first half of the 20th century in America is that Jews were emancipated and so part of society, but were not really fully accepted. That's why we established our own hospitals, Jewish hospitals. That's why we established our own country clubs, and uh, that's why we established how, uh, places for learning when, Jew, when there were quotas for, in, in places of higher learning for Jews. So even though anti-Semitism remains a significant problem and a problem that, that seems to be increasing, it seems to me that the, the great opportunity and the reason why the 21st century actually holds great promise for the message of Judaism is that we are also given a platform and listened to as Jews in a way that we never have before. We have penetrated society in a way that I describe as hyper-emancipation, not just emancipation, but we, we, we're accepted at all levels of professions and governments and can speak as Jews in that, in that context. Uh, in ways that were that were really never true previously in Jewish history, so you, you could look at it sort of as uh, as the best best of times with the not worst of times, but with a little bit of downside times mixed in. Elevated anti-Semitism, and yet at the same time, the 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 feature of this radical open access for Jews and Jewish views in the broader social domain. So the other wild card I want to ask you about, because it's got to figure into this, the shifts and the changes and the transitions and transformations of Judaism in the digital age is Israel. Uh, cause we seem to be smack dab in the middle, uh, in spring of 2023 of shifts in that whole relationship generationally, politically. How do you see this fitting? And I know it's tough to, predict. I, I, I understand that. But it's such an ingrained part of who we are as a people and increasingly a challenge. How do you see this ha this impact? We've talked about anti-Semitism. How do you see this relationship to Israel impacting 
this shift in the digital age? Well, two things. First, the 21st century, from a Jewish point of view, is the Israel century. Already, 47% of the world's Jews live in Israel. We're expecting that that will be over 50% of the world's Jews within three or four years' time. And if current projections hold true from a demographic, from a demographic perspective, then the, the, it, it looks like that by the middle of the century or a little bit afterwards, we, we might have three quarters of the world's Jews in Israel, which, which will be remarkable. It, it, will really remain, it will really mean that the Zionist dream of bringing the Jewish people as a nation back to their national home will have, been, uh, will have reached its natural culmination. And, and the reason I, uh, I remark about that is because it implies that if you want to turn your back on Israel as a Jew, you are essentially going to be leaving behind the significant, the most significant conversation from the largest, most significant Jewish community in the world. So, so that there, there is no option. That is my, my, fir- my first point is there is no option other than to engage with Israel and to seek to shape the conversation in Israel, because that's where the Jewish future lies, as far as we can tell, if current trends hold true. The second thing I think is important to bear in mind is that Israel, as is really well known, has become a high-tech powerhouse. Right. And if Israel has become a high-tech powerhouse, then it ought to also be a high-tech ethical powerhouse. We ought to be the ones who should be asking the tough questions about should this technology be out there? Should that technology be shaped the way it is? Right now, Israel, like so many other places of, uh, of significance in, in, in the high-tech world, is very focused on just putting a, as many extraordinary products out there as, as the market will, will welcome. But I think we have to have a, a sense of real, of a real Jewish vision of what sort of products should be out there and what not. Let me even give you an example. Uh, Israeli high tech has produced spyware that, uh, this is the, the, the NSO scandal. If, if some, I refer to it as a scandal. If, uh, if people are, are aware of it, I, I wrote a, a piece in the, in the Jerusalem Post recently about it. This is, this is spyware that, that goes on an ordinary cell phone that can, that can essentially be used undetected and has been used by dictatorial authoritative regimes to really cause havoc in the communities of those who oppose them. So dissidents, people who are fighting against those regimes, are negatively impacted by the use of that sort of spyware. It, it seems to me that when rabbis are silent, when Judaism is silent about the production and use of that sort of technology from Jewish sources, that we are failing what Judaism ought to be. If Judaism has nothing to say on that, if Judaism is just about when does Shabbat begin and what's kosher, then Judaism is way too narrow and isn't well prepared. 
for the challenges of the digital age. The rabbis and Judaism more generally needs to have a voice in the high-tech sphere saying what is ethically appropriate, what is Jewishly appropriate, and what not. That, I think, is where um, Israel is going to be a very significant player and should be number one player in terms of how we think about these matters ethically. So you write towards the end of the book, if I'm not mistaken, this concept of um, hyperethics. Is this what you're talking about? Exactly what you're talking about now? Well, hyperethics is a little different because hyperethics uh, point, points to what, what we're discovering, which is that as the, technolo- as the rate of technological progress goes exponential, which is what we're seeing because of the, of the nature of, uh, 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 of how one thing builds upon another in a global integrated environment. So the way in which our ethical challenges also speed up dramatically. And so we're asked to respond very differently within just a few years to issues that we thought we already had nailed down just a little while ago. So uh, what, what, what I point out in the discussion of hyperethics is that we need to be primed to rethinking what is ethical on a very rapid basis. You know, it, it used to be, if you think about 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, that a person could be taught what was ethical and how to conduct themselves uh, as a child. And those rules and that, that way of thinking would serve them well throughout their entire life because the, 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 uh, the ideas of uh, what was ethical and how appropriate behavior should be shaped didn't change very much or very fast. And that already has, has shifted. Those, those who are beyond a, beyond a certain age will realize that they have come to reappraise areas, let's give an example, areas of sexual ethics, uh, not once or twice, but probably several times over the decades of their lives. And that will continue to happen in all areas right. of human conduct on a, on a faster and faster basis. Yeah. I, just reflecting about my generation of the rabbi, I've been out 50 and a half years. And just in that, the lifetime of since ordination to now, the, the total transformation of our community, um, the Judaism is there now. When I walked out in June 60, 1972, just the synagogue service, the prayer books, the whole nature uh, is, is, is radically different, which sort of like gives, you know, evidence to what you're talking about. I have this, I, I'm going to end it because we're going to start running out of time. We got to ask you this bizarre question coming, you know, the Sunday New York Times, uh, book review always have these interviews with authors and they ask them about who they'd invite to dinner. And as I was reading your book, um, th- and especially that, that early part of the book, when you, you, you walk a little bit through the enlightenment and, the, the history which you alluded to earlier in the podcast. I'm thinking if Danny Schiff could sit down on some magical frame uh, or plane of existence and have dinner with Abraham Geiger and Herzl, Isaac Mayer Wise and Schechter and Rabbi Schechter. Okay. And, and, and say so you're grinning, but I, it, it's just one of these, like of all the things that they saw in their Jew and, 
say, here we are in 2023 in this digital age. What, what do you think you'd, ex- how, how do you think you'd explain the Judaism of now to, to, to them? Would they be pleased? Do you think? Or they'd be say, wow, this, wh- what do you think? Well, the first question is what we what we would what serve. We serve. Right? I know, I have to do it. But but uh, the, the 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 guests are the are the founders of um of Reform and Conservative Judaism largely. Yeah, is that- yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, look, I, I I think that they should be well satisfied. What 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 I try to communicate in the book is that my prediction that Reform and Conservative Judaism are coming to an end is not in any way a criticism of Reform and Conservative Judaism. I don't think that anybody ever thought that Reform and Conservative Judaism were going to last a 1,000 years, nor should they. Movements are, of course, a response to the circumstances in which they find themselves. So the only question, therefore, is when should we say that a particular approach to Judaism has has run its course? And, And my contention is, that the Reform Conservative Judaism did an invaluable job for Jewish life and had tremendous impact on what we call modern orthodoxy as well, and really successfully helped Jews to take a place in modern society and to incorporate modern thinking into Judaism, and that those particular successes laid the foundations for what will come next. But what will come next will have to be different because this dramatic transformation in human civilization requires a very different sort of Jewish response. And therefore, even though we can't quite see it yet, I'm sure that new iterations of Judaism lie just around the corner. You know, you know that in the book, at the start of the book, I, I, I make the point that if you'd asked, if you'd met a Jew in the year 1900, um, I'm sorry, 1800, and you said to that Jew in the year 1800s, start of the 19th century, right. you know, it's a, it's a brand new century. What's a, what sort of Judaism do you think lies ahead? Whatever that Jew would have told you would have been hopelessly wrong. They couldn't see that the first Reformed congregation was just 10 years down the track and that in the 19th century, you would have Reformed Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Zionism, extraordinary movements that would transform Jewish life in, in major ways. But all of that was invisible to the, to the Jew in the year 1800. And I, th- I think we're in a similar moment right now. Uh, the, we, we, we know that there has been a massive transformation in human civilization that will yield different forms of Judaism. Exactly what shape they will take, we can't yet see. But I would say to those people around the dinner table, you should be pretty well satisfied with what the reform and conservative movements did during their span. Uh, Rabbi Dan Schiff, the author of Judaism in a Digital Age, uh, available at bookstores and obviously through the probably the great God Amazon. And um, <laughs> Dan, thank you very, very much. Best of luck with this book. I, I think it raises so many really, really important questions. And again, for those of you who, who are involved with book clubs or uh, organizations, sisterhoods, brotherhoods, et cetera, et cetera, if, if still have them. Um, it's a really good book, I think, for you to think about. Good old Spark, a tremendous amount of conversation uh, within your particular organization. So, um, and uh, stay healthy and, and um, take care of yourself. Best of luck with the book, seriously. Thank, Thank you. you.
Thank you. Thanks David. for having me on, Rich. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Believe me. And to all of you, thank you very, very much again for joining us on today's edition of The Secrets of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Uh, remember, if you'd like to support our work, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the conveniently located donate button. And if you have a question or like information about sponsoring these podcasts, just email me at rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. Secrets of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubeckin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a shout out to our expert producer, Steve Lubeckin. Again, I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and I look forward to greeting you on our next Secrets of Meaning podcast and TV show. In the meantime, everybody stay healthy, stay well, be kind to one another. Shalom. Shalom.